Amen. Be seated. All right, take your Bibles this morning, turn to Ephesians chapter 2, we'll be in verses 8 through 10. It's good to see each one of you this morning. I have my daughter came with me today. She, they, they were talked about me having to drive every day, every Sunday out here. So she came to be, give me something to do while I'm driving out here. Last Sunday, you know how cold it was in the morning? My heater in the truck's out. And it's a long drive from Fort Worth to here when it's 28 degrees in my truck. So I was just glad I thawed out last week in time. I've also gotten a new job this week. I got promoted. I am now the assistant head coach of the varsity football team that I'm coaching. I went, they kicked me up from JV. And so we've started practice. You got to get ready now to defend our state title. So we've been doing that a little bit there a couple days a week. Uh, I have learned some things. When you win a state championship, most of the teams don't want to play you anymore. So our head coach is telling me that our five of the games we have this week, if you add their total losses up among those five teams last year, they lost four. Five teams lost four. That means one and one was undefeated. So the boys better work hard. And they'll have to because I'm too old to work too hard and stuff if we're going to halfway to defend what we did last year. So All right. We're going to jump into this quick and fast today. We're, we're at the critical verse now. But I really think what we did last week is a critical spot. And I think this is the elaboration of it to help us to understand. Now, you, you, you can't look around much and not know life's changing quick. And you know things are crazy when you agree with people you wouldn't think you'd normally agree with. But I am agreeing right now with uh, Cardinal Bourne, Catholic Cardinal. And he is the Archbishop of Westminster. I was privileged in 207 to, to speak at Oxford University and one of the things I learned when I got over there is how far the Church of England has deteriorated when it came to faith in Christ and the Word of God. Well, this week, they took even lower steps, moving away from God's Word in a very dramatic way. And so the, the Catholic Archbishop, speaking against the Church of England, says, the habit of, of what we call the Christian life here in England has disappeared. It is no longer to be found. Well, you know, one of the signs of the end times is what? A growing cold towards the things of God. Now, I'm, I'm not smart enough to know if we're in the end times, that he could be coming at any moment. It's above my pay grade. But I do know he's coming. But I know that no matter when he comes, whether it's here soon or it's off in the distance, or if it's past my lifetime, I have the same calling whether he comes tonight or whether he comes next year, or whether he comes 20 years, or another 500 years. And that is to take serious what Christ has done in my life, and then to live it out in demonstration of the very presence of God in our lives. And so as we get into it today, this is what we're coming now to. Because we don't just believe things. Yes, we do believe certain things that are very true about God's Word, but it ought to have a dramatic impact on who we are. You were just singing some songs that talked about new life and a new way of going and everything else. Well, let's do a quick review over the last three weeks. I started this off with the sermon of Ephesians 1 back around Thanksgiving, and then we began the second sermon just a few weeks ago. But in review, remember this. And a couple of you have come up to me afterwards and have said you've done this. In your Bible, especially in that first chapter, 
Just circle every time you see in Christ, in him, in the beloved, and look how many times over and over and over Paul makes that reference. And so the gist of that simply is this. Everything we do has to be centered in Jesus Christ, and anything less than that is wrong. When I was at Oxford, our moderator wrote a book that was a bestseller in England. He was head of the the cathedral, St. Mary's Cathedral there at Oxford. It's this massive cathedral like you see in some of the churches in Europe. And on Sunday morning, he would stand in that cathedral to preach to 25 people. That was the largest crowds he ever got. I happened to go onto his website and listen to a sermon, and I began to understand why only 20, I was surprised 25 showed up because it had nothing to do with Christ, had nothing to do with the Bible, had nothing to do with anything. Just a little short philosophical talk, and they, he would go. But he wrote a best-selling book, Why the Resurrection is Not True, and it was a best-selling religious book in England in 2007. When I gave my speech that day, and things really was interesting, what happened that day when I gave my, my speech to the Oxford Roundtable on faith in Christ, a hope in Christ, and the love that comes from Christ, and the reaction I got was good. It was amazing considering the group I was in front of. And he didn't even know how to respond to all of that. See, the world doesn't grasp and understand who Jesus is, even religious people. But we are a people who've come to know something. He is the son of God. He died on our behalf. He's been raised from the dead and he now lives in us. And so that's why we gather and we sing and we praise and we pray in his name because everything centers in Christ. And so in your walk from here on out, everything you do should have that focus. And then the writer of Paul said this, you've been blessed, guys. You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing that you need. Everything you could ask for to be able to get through this life is already yours. And it's found in verses 3 through 14. That's one sentence in the Greek language. English, where you have it in several sentences. But basically, quickly is, you were chosen from foundation world. You were adopted in the family of God. Grace was freely given to you. You've been redeemed, which means bought with a price. Your sins have been forgiven. Grace has been lavished on you. The mystery of God's will has been revealed to you. You, you know all things are summed up in Christ. You have an inheritance. Because the inheritance, you have hope. And now you've also been sealed with the Spirit. And he is the down payment of your inheritance. If you understand that, then it has profound impact on who you are and how you live your life every day. But a lot of times, all we do is hear that. It never quite sinks in. So Paul then began to pray. He prayed that the church at Ephesus would have a spiritual wisdom and understanding of what he just said. And that God would give them the ability to understand that. And he says that when you become enlightened, then you'll know the hope of your calling. You'll know the riches of your inheritance, and you'll know the surpassing greatness of the power of God that is at work within your life. And he begins to wrap up chapter one by saying, and that's in Christ, who will one day come and bring all this to completion. And then last week, we looked at what makes this really amazing. Because when we get to 2.8, which is a very famous verse, and most of you probably have it memorized you don't have the appreciation of it if you don't know what 2, 1 through 3 said. And that's what we looked at. We said we were dead in our trespasses and sin. We were influenced by Satan. We were influenced by the world. We were influenced by the spirit of age. Our own lust of the flesh, the lust of the mind, dictated and controlled much of what went on in our lives. And by simply, we were just simply children of wrath, deserving God's wrath. That was a description, as I said last week, of every one of us in this room. None of us escaped this except by God's grace. But he said this, and I, I always think 2-4 is the best verse. 
but God. If you left us at three, we'd all be in hell, separated forever from God. But God, rich in mercy, which every one of us in this room so desperately needed, with the great love which he has loved us, did what? Made us alive. We were dead. No hope. No inheritance. No purpose, really. But Christ came. He has made us alive. But not only made us alive, but raised us up so we can get up. And we're already positioned. We're seated in the heavenly places. I don't fully grasp and understand how that can be that I'm standing here in Greenville today preaching, but yet I, my position, I'm seated in heaven. But it's a reality that all of us who are in Christ have. So that leads us now to verse 8, which is really a summary now of all he said through that. So if you'll stand with me, let's follow along in your Bible, verses 8 through 10. Again, you know this well, but here's what it says. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourself. It is a gift of God. It's not of works. Because he doesn't want any of us boasting. But we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus. For good works. And here comes our purpose. Which God prepared beforehand. That we would walk in them. Father, be with us today as we study this. Help us to grasp and understand the purpose that you have for our lives. It is more than just giving us life eternal, but it's to bring us to a new place, a new, new way of walking, a, a new purpose in life. And so, Father, do your work among our hearts. Teach us this day is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we just start with a simple point this morning. You already know this, but by grace, you've been saved. That's, you know, we did John Newton last week and his famous song. That song has always struck a chord with people because maybe we don't fully always understand it, but we know that most of the time we don't deserve anything that God's done. It's totally by grace. Now, I stated it last week, but I remind you again this week, when I read here in verse eight, for by grace, you've been saved. It's the second time he's already said this. He said it in verse five. And he's now saying it again. And what you got to do is put between there the three things he said. He's kind of got bookends on this to bring to a point. And what he told us was this. You were dead in your trespasses. You've been made alive with Christ. You've been raised up to live. And you've been seated in the heavenly places. Do not underestimate how important those truths are. You sit here today. Why? Well, it's habit. It's what we do. No, you sit here today because Christ in you. You're here to worship. You're here to be with other believers. You're here to learn. You're here to be able to walk in a manner that will be pleasing to the Father. That's why when John Newton, who went from one of those depraved, wicked men you could ever meet, and I guarantee you, if any of us in this room had known him when he was 18 or 19, we would have not liked him and we'd have loved to have gotten out of his presence because how bad this man was. But when this man died in his 80s, all the people who wrote about him, and there's many books written about him, said this is one of the most gentle, kind, generous men who ever walked on the face of the earth. What brought about the sudden change from a 19, 20-year-old involved in slave trade, becoming the man who will eventually overturn slavery in the world with Williams Wilberforce? 
It was this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. See, those were more than just words to him. They were the truth or reality of what happened to him. And so what I want you to notice when I look at verse 8 is the sign of grace that is at work in your life today is what? Your faith in Jesus Christ. How do you know you're alive? Because you're trusting Jesus every single day. See, God is at work. He's the one who makes all this seem to happen. But you have the responsibility. You have to believe. You have to trust in Christ. That is a process too. Yes, there comes that point where you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior. You made that decision. I did on August the 13th in 1974 in Gloria, New Mexico. I gave my heart and my life to Christ. But ever since then, my life has been learning how to do that. And what, when we go by grace, we live by faith every day. Every single day. Paul told the church at Colossae, as you receive Christ, so walk in him. How did you receive him? By faith. How do you walk in him? By faith in Christ. What his word says, all that we learn from this, we walk in that every day that he will take care of us. See, a lot of times I think we waver a little as we go through life, but that's just part of this struggle you and I go through. One of the best definitions of faith is found in Romans 4. It's about Abraham. How strong a faith was Abraham as a man growing up? He didn't come be called by God till he was 75 years of age. So I'm, I'm five years younger than, than Abraham was when he got called to start uh, his, his life. I can't imagine at 75 being told to pick up and move, go to a place you know absolutely nobody, and, and change your life in the most dramatic of ways. But he does that. But all through that, he responded to everything that God would ask him to do. And when you get to Genesis 15, you have the remarkable conversion story of Abraham when he finally really dawns on him what all of this is about and Romans 15 said it was credit to him as righteousness which means from New Testament that's when he really finally came and grasped it but how much of a man of faith was as he walked through life sometimes well I want you to know he wavered a little bit off and on didn't he remember when there was a famine and they go down to Egypt as they're heading down to Egypt he turns to Sarah Sarah evidently was probably one of the most beautiful women in all the world at that time. She was probably in about, she was about 10 years younger than him, so she'd been a 65 to 70 during this time frame of going that. She is so gorgeous and so beautiful that even the Pharaoh will take notice of her and bring him into his group of ladies that he has around him. But what did Abraham tell her? What did he ask her to say? Tell him you're my sister. It's a half-truth. There's some direction there where it's kind of true, but not true. But you're my sister. Why did he do that? Because he's afraid that the Egyptians would kill him and take his wife from him because of her beauty. But what's the problem with Abraham? Abraham's not believing God at this moment. How do I know that? How do you know that? God had already told him God had already spoken to him in Genesis 12 and again in 15 and a couple other spots that you one day will have a son. And through that son will come a, 
a, a nation of people that you more than the sands of the sea or the stars in the skies. Had he had a son? No. But yet he's afraid. But God protects him in the midst, even as he's growing a little weaker. You get about 13 or so more years after that, and you got something else begin to unfold. He doesn't have a son. So he's going to help God at this point. He'd asked God for a son, but nothing's unfolded. So what did he do next? Well, he didn't do anything. His wife came and said to him, take Hagar, make her your wife, and you have a child by her. I can get in trouble for this, but this might show what happens, guys, when you listen to your wife. Boy, did he mess up. On this one, he messed up. What happened? His faith had wavered. It had wavered. Why? Because he didn't have a son. He needed a son. He needed an heir. He needed this. And so he's going to help God along the way. And yet in doing that, he errs dramatically in a way that was not good. Later in life, it happens again. What happened the third time? They have to go into another land again. And he turns to his wife and says again to her, you be my sister. He still doesn't have a son. Yet they survive through all of that. But eventually, getting close to the 100-year mark, he finally has Isaac. Something in the midst of all of that finally came to him, and he finally got to the point of what Romans 4 will talk about. And that is that this man now does not waver in unbelief anymore, but he grew strong. So how do we know that when Isaac is born, this man had finally got the point in his life that he's a man of deep and abiding faith and an example to every one of us of what it is. For by grace you've been saved through faith to walk in this faith on a daily basis. Well, you know the story well. In the story, he is there that night. He gets a word from God to get up the next morning and to get up the next morning, take Isaac with him, go to the mountain, and to offer his son as a sacrifice, his only son, the son that he's waited all of these years for to take him there. What did he do when the sun, maybe even before the sun began to break that morning? What did Abraham do on the morning he's going to take him? He got up early. I don't know about you, if I'm going to have a bad day like that or I'm going to be involved in something I really don't want to be involved in, I don't get up as fast. I may drink an extra cup of coffee to delay getting out of the house that day. He's up early to go. And they start that process very quickly. And he takes Isaac and his servants with him and they start that trip. And there's some interesting things that happen along the way as they're almost there. He's going to tell the servants, you stay here. We're going to keep going. Y'all just wait for us. We're going up and we're coming back. This is not the man now who wavered at other times with his wife or uh, with uh, Hagar in that situation. This is a man now doesn't waver in the most difficult moment of his life. And as he get a little bit farther, finally Isaac looks around and goes, okay, Dad, I see a lot of what's going on, but where's the, where's the ram? Where, where's the sacrifice? And he penned those words that all of us know or said those words. Jehovah Jireh. God will provide. And when he gets there, he raises his hand up to be able to bring the knife down, to, to take his son's life, to offer him as a sacrifice as God intended. But God never intended that, and he stops his hand. 
What I find fascinating is how could he take the knife and raise it up at that moment? God's never called any of us to do this, but on Abraham, he did. Why was Abraham able to take that knife and plunge it into his son? Do you know we find the answer in Hebrews, the 11th chapter? Have you ever noticed what it said in Hebrews 11 about that situation? It says that Abraham had figured it out that if he took Isaac's life, God would raise him from the dead. Now, what I find fascinating about that is, has anybody been raised from the dead at that point? Has there been any teaching on the raising of somebody from the dead? We look from the backward way at everything. He's there at the very beginning and the formation of the nation and the law of God still has not come and a lot of the promises are still not there. But what happened was he understood now something. When God's at work, God's at work and it's going to be accomplished and he's going to walk with him and God will do whatever it takes to fulfill everything that he says. So Romans 4 tells me this. Romans 4 says he grew to the point that he did not waver in unbelief, but he knew if God promised it, if God promised it, it's true. Grace brings us to the point that we're dead in our trespasses and we don't buy into any of that kind of stuff. And yet when grace comes and we come by faith in Christ, we now walk by faith. And our process now is learning that if God said it, it's true. And that's your, what you're doing every day when you get up is learning to grow in that. In the grace that John Newton finally understood what it was about. So that's why he wrote the amazing song that he did. So what does this faith look like? Well, it's Romans 10, 9. You'll confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart in the resurrection. That's what it's about. You're not ashamed of who Jesus is. You're willing to confess. The word confess means homologeo in the Greek and it means to say the same thing. To say what God says. Jesus Christ is Lord. And so you make that confession. Romans 10, 9 says that faith is knowing that if you call on the name of Jesus, you'll be saved. So you know because of the work of God within you that because you came to Christ and you confess him as Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him to the dead, you have eternal life. So you and I are able to walk in assurance every single day to the confidence that we know that one day we will be with him. Several years ago, I had a, a bike wreck. I used to road, ride road bikes, did the hotter in hell in Wichita Falls, things like that. I'd go ride with some friends of mine 30, 40 miles a day, and I enjoyed that. I bought a new bike. I'd had mine a while, so I added another one to my collection. It was the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. And I went out for about a 10, 15-mile ride. It was just a hybrid. It wasn't a road bike, and I'm enjoying the ride. It's a perfect fall day in San Antonio, not a cloud in the sky. Temperatures are perfect. And I'm just enjoying being out quiet, work. We'd close the offices at the church. And I'm pulling back into the neighborhood, and I glanced down at my phone. I pulled it out, and I'd ridden 9.8 miles. Well, that doesn't look good. I need 10. So I went down the cul-de-sac, just turned around and come back. So I'd have 10 miles. That looks better, double digits and single digits. So I go down a little bit farther. Some of you guys who do this, you know, you just got to push it one more step. So I'm coming back, and I have the phone in my hand. And I'm coming up to my driveway. And they say the most dangerous place in the world is one mile from your home. Well, I hit the front brakes, not the back brakes. Brand new bike. It locked. It flipped. Body slammed me hip first, face second, into concrete as hard as you can imagine. 
And I was hurt bad. I had to call an ambulance, come get me. I was in the emergency room. But I'm laying there on the concrete. I threw my phone was quite a distance. My kids said I was texting. Uh, I wasn't. Should have been. But I had to crawl to my phone, call my wife. I got a horrible concussion. I'm thinking my face has just been obliterated by the concrete. She's asleep in the chair. I said, you need to come outside. She came out. I said, call an ambulance. And she tried to get me up, and I started fading away. And I rolled over on my back on the concrete, and I'm just laying there. I am hurting like I've never hurt in my life. I put my hand down here on my hip where the concrete had hit, and I got a massive hematoma. And I'm laying there going, I busted my femoral artery. I'm dying in my driveway. What a place to die. And I laid there, looking up through a tree, blue skies, no clouds, and just waited. I've always thought it was strange. Wasn't scared. I really thought it was over. Until a few minutes later, I heard an ambulance in the distance and thought, well, maybe I'll survive. See, I think if you and I come to grasp that we know what Jesus has done for us and the God's work of making us alive and sealing us and holding us, then it'll give us a quietness that when that moment comes, because I've watched too many times my fellow church members breathe their last breath, always in peace. God gives us grace because we know we have life eternal which should give you the freedom to be able to live like you've never lived your entire life. And then Romans tells me, too, that whoever believes in Jesus will never be disappointed. Oh, life disappoints us all the time. Your parents have disappointed you. Your kids have disappointed you. Your grandkids will disappoint you. People at work will disappoint you. Sometimes in church, people will disappoint you. That happens. Life doesn't work out always the way we want but I want you to know this. If you ever come and understand fully what God's done for you, you'll never be disappointed by the grace you found in Christ. You will never be disappointed by that. But here's where I want to lead today. This went longer than what I intended to, so we might just stay a little longer. It's just 1130, so lunch doesn't start till a little bit later. And the game's not till 5, so we'll see how it goes. <laughs> I get to watch the game. I never get to watch. I've missed so many Super Bowls because of church. They don't have church where I go on Sunday nights, so I'm going to sit there and have my dip and my drink and my sliders, and uh, we're ready for Super Bowl party, and I'll probably sit there and look at my wife and say, is this why they never came back on Sunday nights? This is kind of nice. Now, we'll finish up here, but here's where I want to go. Notice what it then says in verse 10. We're his workmanship. The word workmanship there is the word creation. Remember what we did a couple weeks ago in Psalms 139? how amazing every one of us are and how he's created every one of us and waved us together and wove us in our mother's womb and did all this amazing work to make us who we are. Well, there's more than that. Ephesians is later going to tell you this creation that you are, you're created in righteousness and holiness. What he has done is he started a work in you and when that work's going to be, he's going to make you into a righteous man or woman and he's going to make you into a holy man or woman. And that doesn't mean you're some super saint. It just means you're a good person who walks in a good way, who treats people well. That's what this is all about, is loving your neighbor as you love yourself because you've learned to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This new creation is that now you can move into life and live it in a way you've never lived before. That's why Paul told the church at Corinth, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, 
He is a new creation. You are a new creation. Galatians 6 says the same thing. Paul said to the church at Galatia, you are people who are now a new creation in Christ. And Philippians, uh, Philippians 1.6, one of my favorite verses, Paul tells the church at Philippi, he who began a good work in you, the new creation, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, the coming of Christ Jesus our Lord. God and all those in this room who are in Christ Jesus, God began a work in you. And he's doing that work right now. You're an unfinished product, but you're moving forward by faith and trust in Christ, by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Paul saw it in himself. Paul said this, whatever I gained in life, I count them as loss. What did he gain? Well, guys, he, he is superstar of the people he was around. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's trained under one of the most brilliant men in history, Gamaliel, who you read about in Scripture, but also in many of the other Jewish writings they have. You couldn't have got a greater education this man had. This is a man who got to stand before kings. This is a man who traveled the world. This is a man who, who would have had uh, some money and other influences that he could use, but he comes to Christ, and as he looked back on his life and all that he had going for him, he goes, you know, that's okay, that was good, but that's my old life. I am now a new person. And you know what he says? I count all things that lost to the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I will suffer the loss of all things. And I will count them as rubbish in order to gain Christ. You know, when Paul wrote those words, he had to be about 60 years of age. And I'm, I'm speculating. We don't know exactly, but it fits the time frame when the, this letter may have been written. And I'm guesstimating his age when he came to Christ. But I'll put him in his late 50s, maybe his early 60s. And here's a man who has done everything you can imagine in preaching the gospel all over the world. And you know what he tells the church at Philippi from jail? Here's a man trained on the greatest teachers. Here's a man who has spent 14, 15 years studying before he ever began ministry. And when he steps out, he has an insight and wisdom by the Holy Spirit to do things you and I can't even begin to fathom and, and to teach with the wisdom that very few men have ever had. You know what he says when he's 60? I want to know him. I want to know him. I'm going to go, he already knew him. No, he's still learning. He wants to know him better. It's part of us growing up. If you're married, you know how it is. You're, you still learn your spouse even through the years that pass. You know, life changes and we adjust and everything else. And love is you're always learning, wanting to know the person next to you. That really is all love is. You just want to know that person who, who is next to you the whole time. He said, I just want to know him. I want to know the power of the resurrection, which he has experienced, but he wants to continue to know that. And I want to know the fellowship of the suffering. He's still learning. That's what grace does. We come to faith, but we're now a new creation. And that new creation is we want to learn. And so Paul will then say a little bit later, I've not attained it yet. I'm 60 years of age and I'm still not there yet. I've not become perfect yet. But this I do. I press on. I move forward. I, I want to lay hold of what God laid hold of me for. 
See, when God brought you alive, he laid hold of you to accomplish something in life. And now Paul's reaching up because he wants to lay hold of what God's doing within his life. And then he comes to that famous verse in Philippians which says this, I press on the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's what the new creation is about. You're his workmanship. And so the rest of your life is this desire to be able to move forward. That's what new creation is all about. The pressing onward every day. In fact, a moment ago, you all sang this. And did you mean it when you sang it? Look where I'm standing now. Look where I'm standing now. I'm not here anymore. I'm over here. See, we do that a lot in life. When I spoke that time at Oxford in 2007, my mom was a math professor at a university in Southeast Texas. She taught for 25 years math. And so when that day came that I'm invited to Oxford, mom had been dead for two years. My dad went with me. My wife joined me on the trip over there and some friends from the church. Some of my deacons went with me. So I, I felt important because I had a little honorage following me all around. And I'm at Oxford but as I'm standing off the side and they're getting ready to introduce me to the, to the deans of, of all the universities to give my speech, supposedly, whatever you want to call it there, I'm going, oh, I wish mom was alive. I wish she could see where I am right now. See, she never thought I was going to mount to much. And here I am at Oxford to make a presentation. I wanted her to see where I was standing now. Well, I want you to know something. God knows exactly where you're standing now. He put you there. But look how far he's brought every one of us in this room. We're not what we used to be, thank goodness. But look where we are now. And look where you're going. So that leads to the last point. I told you it's going to take a while. Last point simply is this. It's time to get to work. It's time to get to work. Why would I say that? Verse 10. So that we would walk in them. He prepared us for good works. We're a new creation, so let's walk in them. You were created to do good. In fact, Paul told Titus, you're to, they're to be zealous for good. You know, in Ephesians, this walk stuff is there over and over again. Verse 4, one, chapter 4, 1, walk in a worthy manner. 4, 17, don't walk as the rest of the world walks. You're, you don't have the old life anymore. 5, 2, walk in love. 5, 8, walk as children of light. Ephesians 5, 15, walk as wise men. So here's what this is about. We haven't got into practicality of life. That's coming when you get to chapter 4 of how do we live out this Christian life and what is expected of us. But I can challenge you at this point is you walk different. You walk in a new life. You walk in love. You walk in wisdom. You walk in righteousness. You no longer walk in darkness, but you walk in life. And what you're going to do is you're going to move in a way that will demonstrate the very presence of God in your life. That's going to be in your family setting. It's going to be in your work setting, be in your church setting, be in when you're out in the public setting, wherever God has placed you. You're going to be there walking in a manner that is worthy of the calling that you have in Christ. God prepared that you should do that. Now, where's he going to take you? I have no idea. Back in 
2013 when I was on the Fox and Friends and CNN and defending the soldiers in, in San Antonio against the Obama policies. And I was very active in that. Many of the pastors would pull me aside in San Antonio, even some of the really big ones that you'd know their names if I said them, and go, how did you do this? How do we do this? How do we jump into the fray and do all that kind of stuff? I said, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? I said, I just woke up one day and this is where I am. It was my soldier that was in trouble. It's my soldier that was being destroyed. I just did what a pastor does. A pastor stands with his his flock, no matter the cost. He watches over and protects them. Sergeant Monk's my buddy. His wife's a close friend of my wife and I. I'm just defending my friend. See, people want to know how I get to be on television. You really don't want it. Enjoy not having any fame. It's not always very much fun. But here's what you do. You walk through life, and wherever God puts you, you shine. You be the person he called you to be at that particular moment. He's not going to stick all of us always in a big limelight thing. Most of the time, we just all live pretty much a boring life. But there's nothing wrong with that. We love our families, and we love our friends, and we love our church members, and we just live life. We work hard at our work. We set a character and a a display of things. That's what walking in good works is all about. Now later we'll see specifically what that is, but that's what we've been called to do. So that when we get towards the end of our life, we can do like Paul did. He wrote Timothy and he said, listen, young man, bring me my books. I don't think I'm going to be around much longer, but I need my books. And bring me a warm coat because he's getting old and he's cold in prison. But he said this. He said, young man, I fought a good fight. And life will always be a struggle. You'll never get to a point it's not a struggle. It is always a struggle. I fought a good fight. And I finished. I may have said this before, but when I did the hotter in hell years ago, and I got to mile 90 on my bike, I'd never done 100 miles before. You've heard of the wall in marathons. It's there in the bike race too. And when you hit the wall... You hit it. Man, it's, I had no energy. I had nothing. The tank was empty. I'd stop to drink some pickle juice, eat a couple cookies at the snack spot because I, I needed gas. And pickle juice is the gas that was going to get me to the last 10 miles. Some of you are shaking your head so you know what that's about. I get on the bike and I can barely pedal. I'm doing 10, 11 miles an hour and just hoping it doesn't fall over with me right in the middle of the street. I'm 56, 55 years of age and going, okay, maybe I'm too old for this. I got my head down and I'm pedaling and I hear this voice, sir, you okay? It's a young female sounding voice. I don't even look at her because I can't even raise my head up. I said, I'm okay. Sir, I'm asking again, are you okay? I must look horrible. I said, I'm okay. Third time. Sir, are you okay? And I turned, and it wasn't a young little 30-year-old young lady on a bike. It was Grandma. She was 76 years of age. (laughs) I said, I'm fine. She said, okay, and she left me. (laughs) I told my wife later there was no Grandma beating me to the finish line. (laughs) But she did. But I want you to know something. I finished. I I finished. There's something about finishing 
That's what God wants from all of us. He wants us to finish well. I stood with my dad last September the 15th, a year ago, a year and a half ago. And I watched him breathe his last. The man who watched over me, protected me, gave me wisdom and insight, always my best supporter you ever asked. I watched him breathe and enter into the presence of God. A couple of days later, I did my father's funeral. You know basically what I said? Finish well. All the way to the end. Good man. Love the Lord. Love my mom. Watched over his kids. He finished well. Stephanie was with me the, this fall a year later when Jan's dad passed away. In fact, Stephanie was singing to him. That's the last thing he would have heard here on this earth as she quietly sang to him there in the hospital room. And then there came a moment that it just went quiet. Jimmy finished well. Good man. Warrior from World War II who stayed faithful and didn't let the hardships of war destroy his character. But a man who trusted in Christ, who loved his family, worked hard his entire life, made it to 96 and finished well. That's what walking in this is so that when you get thin, you can do like Paul. I fought a good fight. I finished the course and I kept the faith. Grace gave us faith. Grace sustains our faith. And grace is what we have by faith at the very in. Do you realize, and I close, the honor to walk in righteousness? Do you realize the honor it is for you to be able to walk in righteousness? Do you understand that doing good really does work? Most believe that doing good doesn't work. I've come to realize doing good always works. The rest of the world walks in futility of mind. But we don't. We walk in the grace we found in Christ. And we have the ability to fight a good fight. We have the ability to finish the course. We have the ability to keep the faith. We have the ability to say, I'm not there yet. I am pressing forward. We have the ability to have a good life doing good things for others. We'll not always be perfect at it. We may not always be real good at it. But we keep getting up every day striving to be all that God has called us to be. And as Paul told the church at Philippi, my citizenship's in heaven. I'm just passing through this earth. But by the grace of God, I have the strength to pass through this earth until he calls me home. So on this day, after what we've looked at over the last two or three, four weeks in the book of Ephesians, you should have such a deep appreciation for what God has done in your life. You were dead in your trespasses and sin, and the world had a grip around you that would not let go. But God broke the chains, and you're free, free, free in Christ. Now, you walk out of here today with your head held high, and you live a life that demonstrates the very presence of Christ in you. And you bring him honor and glory in all that you do. Father, we thank you for this day and for the privilege and honor you give us to study your word. And so, Father, as we bring our service to conclusion, sink these truths into our minds that you have saved us for a purpose, and the purpose is doing good. Later, Lord, help us to understand a little bit of what doing good is about. 
but just realize there's a new call in our lives. And thank you for what you're already doing among all those within this congregation who are already walking in this good works. But help them to grow even stronger. Help us to get like Abraham. Though we waver at times, we finally get to the point knowing if you said it, it's true. Bring us there even quicker. Help us to get to the point that we have complete and total confidence in who you are because that's what faith is, the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And Father, be glorified in and through us as our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.